Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning and welcome to Nobel Forum for the announcement of this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. They say you can't predict the Nobel Prizes. The Nobel Assembly at Karolinska Institute has today decided to award the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. But the first of this year's prizes was probably the most predicted and deserved in history. Jointly to Kathleen Carrico and Drew Weissman for their discoveries concerning nucleoside base modifications that enabled the development of effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. No one should have been surprised by Monday's announcement. The Nobel Committee recognised the science underlying some of the vaccines that saved millions of lives in the COVID-19 pandemic. That prize kicked off a week of celebrations for the most prestigious awards in the scientific world. First awarded in 1901, the Nobel Prizes have always represented the pinnacle of scientific achievement. The discovery of penicillin, the Higgs boson, X-rays, the structure of DNA, CRISPR gene editing, radioactivity and the invention of the MRI scanner. All these bits of fundamental science have been recognised. Often these are ideas that at first can seem otherworldly or complicated, but they're routinely the kinds of things that have profound impacts on science as well as society at large. The winners of these prizes always get cemented into the annals of history. Albert Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. Francis Crick got the Medicine or Physiology Prize. Marie Curie got both the Chemistry and Physics Prizes. This year eight more names have been added to that list of elite scientists. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, the 2023 Nobel Prizes in Science. Ten years ago, biochemist Kathleen Carrico had just returned from a trip to Japan to find something peculiar happening in her University of Pennsylvania laboratory. I am going and see my stuff in the hallway and and somebody was in my lab putting in the trash things which she thought that it is trash, but, you know, for me it was a treasure. (laughs) I was upset that, what are you doing here? And she said that, you know, the chairman said it had to be cleaned up. Kathleen was being moved on. The technician said that you have to talk to the chairman and, you know, and he explained that, Listen, you didn't bring the money. We have that people are getting money and they need more space and you don't bring any money. And I told him that one day this will be a museum here because I believe that it will one day will recognize the importance of RNA. For Catalin, this was just the latest in a series of setbacks in her research career. I am 30 years old and I lost no position. 
And then at 40 years old, I was demoted. It was very difficult to get grant after that because, you know, financial support, because they could see that, you know, I am a, already a damaged goods. <laughs> but I said, okay, the bench is here. Where else if not here? So I'm still working here. And who cares now that I am not a whatever level of science? And then... On Monday morning, the 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine to Katalin Kariko and Drew Weissman. How did you feel when you received a phone call from Sweden? I was sleepy. I was surprised and uh, I was a little bit confused also. Uh, but of course, it is a wonderful thing. Katalin's journey to this point had been a long one. One that began in a house with no running water in a small Hungarian village. My father had just six elementary education. He was butcher. My mother was a bookkeeper. But, you know, during the war, they couldn't study. So this was a simple lie. But my father being a butcher and I watched him cutting up a pig or a sheep. And then I was standing there. I was curious to see what is inside. And we had chickens, which I could watch coming out from the eggs. And we had gardens and we put the seed and we watched how the plant is coming out and many, many things we experience. And, you know, as a child is thinking about always that how it is. If you have a nurturing environment, teachers, then, you know, they are guiding you and then keep your natural excitement and interest towards nature alive. And that's very important. Take me back to the moment when you started to think about working on mRNA. What was it about that molecule or the potential for it that sort of drove you to research it? In 1989, it seemed to me that messenger RNA would be the best way to treat acute diseases, which everybody has. At that time, 1990, when the Human Genome Project started, everybody wanted to deliver the correct DNA for the correct gene when they discovered that gene mutation causing certain diseases. But I thought that most of us won't have genetic diseases. Mostly we have aches and pains and then for we just need a temporal solution. And I thought that the mRNA degrades so quickly, so it would be optimal to use messenger RNA for that. So there was a lot of potential there, but obviously the journey towards getting from that idea of yours to something in people was long and difficult because it didn't turn out to be quite as easy as you might have suggested. Now, your 2005 paper, the famous one with your co-laureate Drew Weissman, was rejected by several high-profile journals at the time. We hear the story from top scientists all the time about how some of their best journal papers were rejected by journals. And I wonder, at that time, how were you feeling when this work was not being even published or allowed to be sort of communicated to other scientists? Yeah, it was interesting. I just remember nature, that we sent it and in 24 hours it came back and it said incremental increase. I have to tell you that I didn't know the word incremental meant. So I translated, I said, what? This is incremental. But if somebody makes a decision, you cannot change that. You have to see what next. So you send to the next paper. This is the same about, you know, four times I was terminated in my position. I couldn't change that. So... I was terminated here 10 years ago. What next? I went to BioNTech. So after years of being shunted around from lab to lab in the University of Pennsylvania, Kathleen left for a little-known biotech startup in Germany that saw potential in her work. In 2020, her research laid the groundwork for the COVID vaccines made by Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna. 
Suddenly, Catalan science was in the spotlight. I have to say that the last two and a half years changed a lot. You see, behind me, my husband made a cabinet for my awards. <laughs> I was uh, getting a lot of awards, which was very unusual because 40 years, you know, in high school was the last time I get an award and the next one is 2021. So I am not working for that kind of recognition. It was November the 9th in 2020, and we were all in a meeting on Zoom. That's Natasha Loder, The Economist's health editor. She's recalling an editorial meeting at The Economist a few months after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, when news came in about the first clinical trial of an mRNA vaccine made by BioNTech and Pfizer. And the editor, Zani, got a message on her phone partway through the meeting and said, I've just got news that the Pfizer vaccine has over 90% efficacy. So she said, where's Natasha? Is 90% efficacy any good? I said, I blurted out, it's fucking amazing. That was my instant reaction. It was absolutely fucking amazing. We had no idea that it would be that effective. I mean, the bar had been set much later. And then, of course, a month later, they were jabbing the first person, a 90-year-old woman called Margaret Keenan. And the rest is history, as they say. I feel like this is probably the most predictable prize in history, right? I mean, how did you feel when it was announced? It was pretty satisfying to see mRNA recognised. Anyone who watches the nobles will know that they take ages to decide something's important. So for them to decide that mRNA was kind of a big deal so quickly was, yeah, very pleasing. Let's talk about what mRNA is. Give us a bit of a primer on what this molecule is and how it works inside the vaccine. Well, so I sometimes use a metaphor to explain what exactly mRNA is. So if you imagine the cell is a castle with a special workshop that makes everything in it, the walls, the furniture, the food, the people inside it. Now, the instructions for making all this stuff in the castle are locked away in a room in a tower. And to get those instructions, you need these little messengers, these little people to run up to the locked room, make a copy of the recipe and take it back to the workshop where whatever item you need is built. And this is the human cell and you know you have the nucleus where you have the DNA with all the instructions for making stuff in the cell and you have these messengers going back and forth with the instructions for making stuff. So the idea of an mRNA vaccine is you actually insert a new messenger that basically doesn't have to go to the tower, it's got its own message built in and it goes straight to the workshop and makes essentially a little bit of viral protein which the body recognises as a foreign protein and then creates antibodies too and you have a vaccine. What we're doing is we're giving the code and the patient's body makes the protein. That's Drew Wiseman, an immunologist at the University of Pennsylvania. And now, Kathleen Carrico's co-Nobel laureate. He was speaking there in 2021 on our Game Changers podcast about how he and Kathleen took mRNA technology from lab to jab. You know, there have been mRNA vaccines since 1993. I think it was the first time they were published. Back then, what they used to do is they would take cells out of a patient, add RNA to the cells, and then give the cells back. And it worked. It wasn't great. But you can't immunize a billion people if you have to take cells out of every person. 
There was a technical problem though. Inserting mRNA into the body triggered a huge, unhelpful immune response. It was highly inflammatory. So what that means is that if you inject it into an animal to test, the animal gets sick. You can't make a drug that makes people sick just because of inflammation. So we spent years figuring out how to get rid of that inflammation. To overcome this, Catalin and Drew looked for a way to modify mRNA in a way that wouldn't trigger the cell's immune response. I'm an immunologist and a virologist, and Katie is a neuroscientist and a molecular biologist. But we both knew back at that time that modified nucleotides, things like AZT and other drugs were toxic. So our idea was that we wanted to use a naturally occurring modified nucleoside. For anyone who isn't a molecular biologist, nucleotides are what make up both DNA and RNA chains. They're written down as letters that together represent the code of life. Our RNA has hundreds of different modifications that are natural. So we investigated different natural modifications that we put into our mRNA, and we found ones that got rid of the inflammation. And finally, in 2005, when we figured out how to get rid of its inflammation, at that point, we knew it had enormous potential for vaccines, proteins, gene therapy, many different treatments for a lot of different diseases. And so, by tweaking the chemistry of one of the nucleotides, the one known by the letter U, to be precise, Drew and Kathleen created mRNA that could bypass the cell's defences and produce the necessary proteins. We thought it was going to change things. We thought our phone would be ringing off the hook and everybody would be saying, oh, wait a minute, this is a great therapy. That didn't happen. It took years before people started using the modified RNA and before companies became interested. So it was around 2010, 2011, that Moderna started, that other companies and other researchers became interested. Katie went to work for BioNTech, and we were the first to publish the mRNA LNP vaccine that's used by Moderna and by BioNTech back in the Zika pandemic. That same technology then allowed Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech to develop the first vaccines that were approved for COVID-19. In those, the mRNA is programmed to make proteins that are on the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The immune system detects those proteins and then makes antibodies that can be used in the event of a real infection. For Catalin, that was the result of decades of struggle You'd think she'd be bitter about how she was treated by the academic world, but she's actually quite philosophical. I was resilient because I didn't care about things I couldn't change, and I focused on what I can do. And uh, that's why I didn't bother what people are talking behind me about my research or something. I could see that what I was doing is good and getting progress, and that's which was driving me rather than, you know, other colleagues or a boss would, you know, tap my shoulder that I'm doing good. Nowadays, Catalin is much more focused on the future. I was always interested to use the mRNA for therapeutic purposes. So 
for heart failure, that uh, programs are ongoing at Moderna. There are when messenger RNA, for example, calls for antibodies, which is very expensive, so that for cancer treatment they are in use. But the messenger RNA importance is that it is very quickly be made, very cheap, and because our body will make the medicine, we just deliver the blueprint, the mRNA. Maybe even for gene therapy, the short-lived mRNA will be the optimal one. So I am watching out all of these different fields also for inducing tolerance for different diseases like peanut allergy or dust mite allergy. So this is also a field which is very exciting to see how mRNA therapy can use. And there's much more to mRNA medicines in the future. Here's Natasha Lode, the Economist Health Editor, on what she's most excited about with mRNA. I think what Moderna is doing is quite interesting, which is moving quite strongly into respiratory vaccines. There's also a whole range of vaccines. One of the most exciting things they're working on, which is really at an early stage, is HIV. And what's interesting here is that we now think we know how to make a vaccine for HIV. It's just very challenging. You have to kind of educate the immune system to move in a very specific way. And they think that it could take maybe three or four different vaccines given in sequence to deliver that kind of protection. And actually, this is where mRNA comes in really handy because you can go through lots of iterations of different candidates quite quickly and tweak them slightly to try and find out which vaccines would work together. And then also BioNTech, of course, are going after cancer vaccines that will train the immune system to target cancers. And it's not just vaccines, of course. The technology of being able to insert a message into a cell to then allow it to make other proteins, it's quite widely applicable, right? Yeah, the idea of using mRNA as a sort of therapeutic molecule to create other proteins that might be missing or broken in cells has not gone away. It would be a much better form of gene therapy if we could get it to work, perhaps, because the molecule is very simple to make. But there are still some challenges ahead. To deliver a therapeutic dose of mRNA, you've still got this issue of whether you're going to get an immune response if you're delivering a lot of these molecules. And then, you know, there's also degradation as well. It's not something that I feel that has been comprehensively solved as well as we would need it to. But lots of people are working on this. And so It's only a matter of time, I would think, before someone solves that problem. All right, Natasha, thank you very much for explaining all of that to me yet again. Now, before I let you go, I'd like to talk to you about this new podcast subscription that The Economist is launching. What do you know about it and are you excited? Well, I know that we are launching a subscriber-only strand for the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult when your work kind of goes behind a paywall, but I suppose as a journalist, what makes me happy is that it means they're going to continue to invest in making these high quality programs. So I'm hopeful this is a sign of better things to come. Although I think what we do now is pretty good, don't you? More things to come. Yeah, like travel, podcasts or beaches, maybe or something like that. No, but you're right. The new service is called Economist Podcast Plus. And just in one sentence, why do you think listeners should subscribe if they're sort of on the fence? Well, I think We deliver the best network of kind of thoughtful podcasts that you can get out there, really. I mean, if you want access to a collection of really intelligent, well-made podcasts, where else are you going to go? I'm not sure I would know. 
And also, if you want more Natasha explaining all of the best biotech stuff, you're going to have to subscribe, I'm afraid. If you sign up right now, you can get a podcast subscription for half price. That's just £2, $2 or €2 a month. It's worth reminding you that with your subscription, you'll also get some exciting new shows, like a special weekend version of The Intelligence, which will feature brilliant storytelling from around the world, and indeed the galaxy. Sadly, there aren't yet any plans for podcasts from beaches, but we will be reporting from all sorts of other places, including in future the European Space Agency, so look out for that. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, don't worry, you'll have full access to all of our podcasts. Thank you for your continued support. It makes all of our work possible. If you're not a subscriber, you'll find the link to that half-price offer I just mentioned if you Google Economist Podcasts. Okay, Natasha, thank you very much for your time today. All right, you're welcome, Alok. Welcome to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences and this press conference where we will present this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. On Tuesday, the Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to three scientists who worked out a way to watch electrons as they move around atoms. For the study of electron dynamics in matter. Electrons zoom around the nuclei of atoms incredibly quickly. They can change position and energy in fractions of an attosecond. Now that's a mind-bogglingly short amount of time. An attosecond is a billionth of a billionth of a second. It's a unit of time so short that there are as many attoseconds in a single second as there have been seconds since the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. An attosecond is 10 to the minus 18 of a second, so that's a million, million, millionth of a second or shorter. John Morangos is a professor of laser physics at Imperial College London and a leading expert in attosecond physics. And that is extremely fast and allows us, for the first time, to measure the sort of native motion of electrons in matter. Electrons move around very fast because they're very light particles. So what's been done is the ability to make light pulses that are as short as that. So the discovery of, of high harmonic generation, the process that underlines the Attersecond Nobel Prize, enables us to make short wavelengths, short duration pulses of light. And that is now being used to probe these very fast processes. And just so that people can visualize what's going on. The way I've heard it described is it's a bit like using a strobe light to watch a very fast process. For example, if you looked at a hummingbird flapping its wings, you couldn't really see the individual motions. But if you used a strobe light at the right frequency, you'd be able to resolve the individual flaps. Yes, because as long as the flashes of the strobe light are significantly shorter than the time of the motion of the wings of the bird, you can freeze that motion in every particular configuration of the flapping bird. And that's essentially the same idea. So we're using very short light pulses to illuminate matter and make these measurements. So can we just go through what each of our new Nobel laureates did creating these attosecond laser pulses? What has been done is that 
the ability to manipulate electrons in an atom using a very strong laser field has led to the creation of these short light pulses. And what happens essentially is that the strong laser field initiates the motion of an electron. It accelerates that electron away from the atom and then brings it back to the atom at high speed, high energy. And then the electron recombines with the atom, and use a technical phrase, and emits a photon of this high energy corresponding to its kinetic energy that it gained in the laser field. In 1987, Anne Louier was experimenting with firing lasers into noble gases such as argon or neon. She found that the lasers gave energy to the atoms in the gas, knocking their electrons loose. When those electrons were eventually recaptured by their atoms, they released energy in the form of light. Those emitted light waves then went on to interact with each other. Wherever their peaks coincided, they would join up and become more intense. But when one light wave's peak met another light wave's trough, the intensity of the light would drop. And sometimes, if several light waves interacted in just the right way, they produced pulses of ultraviolet light that lasted for just a few hundred attoseconds. Around the turn of the century, Pierre Agostini and Ferenc Krauss were working independently and they built on Anne Louis' observations. They turned her discovery into a workable piece of technology, designing a way to reliably produce a series of ultra-fast flashes of light. What Pierre did was to realise that you have these very short pulses or train of pulses of attoseconds. And what Ferenc Krauss did was to isolate a single pulse in that train. So you get a single isolated attosecond pulse and that you can then use in a variety of ultra-fast measurements. So in terms of what we can do with these very short pulses, you mentioned that one of the things is to be able to look at the way that electrons move. Tell me a bit more about why we want to do that, but then also where does that take us? What else does that allow us to do? So first of all, a lot of future energy technology is based on solar excitation of matter, photovoltaics, sunlight-driven chemical processes, etc., etc. And that is about a fast electronic event, which leads to some other change, maybe chemical or physical or whatever. In photovoltaics, it leads to the formation of excitons that then separate into charges that you can then have a current from that you use in your electricity. Or in the case of photochemistry, photosynthesis being the archetypal example, you gather photons of solar light and that then causes chemical transformations, which end up in energy being stored in the material. So those events are triggered by this very fast electronic motion. And up to now, we hadn't really been able to dive right down into the primary electronic timescales of such events. So we are very optimistic that now we can do that. We can actually make measurements at those really phenomenally fast timescales. We also heard about faster electronics generally as, as something that can come from this. Where, how does that work? Yeah, so you can think about using these same concepts of moving the electrons around by a light field to actually develop 
petawatt timescale electronics. So quite a lot is now being done in terms of trying to identify ways to use light fields to drive controllable electronic processes in nanoscale systems that could lead to very fast electronic devices in the future. What does that actually mean? For, is it just faster switching in a computer or faster processing? Yes, for instance, faster switching a computer, it could be in an information context or, or it could be in a high-speed uh, signal processing context or whatever. There was also quite an intriguing example about medical diagnostics, being able to fingerprint molecules as well. How does that work with these laser pulses? Well, this is something that Frank Krauss in particular has been looking at in more recent years. This is an interesting idea. It's, it's not yet fully proven that it has medical or clinical application, but it may do. It's to really use these same concepts of high degree of control of the light field, high degree of control of the coupling of the light field to the electrons to fully resolve the electric field of a sample of, say, blood, which will have a very characteristic spectrum, but some of the most subtle features of that spectrum, which may be connected to disease signature molecules in the sample, would not normally have been easy to uncover. And Ferenc is finding ways to use this field-resolved spectroscopy to actually measure very, very tiny signatures, which could be clinically significant. Okay, so that's the early stage. It's actually, a, he's making relatively large-scale trials at the moment, but, you know, I think it's still not clinically adopted. That's fascinating. So kind of like a physics way of looking for possible disease states. Well, a lot of ways of looking at possible disease in humans are based on physics from the x-ray to the, to yeah, the MRI. So yeah, I, I guess physics has a long track record on this, I would say. The thing I would like to emphasize is how this field of attosecond physics has evolved, uh, in particular, I would say in the last 10 years, to really expand and become pervasive across the sciences. So there's a whole new set of ideas on attosecond chemistry, how we could control the electron motion in molecules in order to control chemistry. There's a whole bunch of these ideas we just discussed about very fast electronics driven by light. There's a whole range of ideas ideas of new ways of measuring solid state matter using these interactions. And now we have these very bright x-ray sources that are potentially allowing us to really probe inside condensed phase matter, the attosecond dynamics of all sorts of phase transitions and electronic excitation events that then couple to dynamics of the structure or whatever. John, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure, and uh, thanks for taking an interest in this era of science. Coming up, how almost a century of work led to a new class of materials whose properties can be tweaked just by changing the size of their crystals. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today on Babbage, we're looking at the 2023 Nobel Prizes in Science. Finally, in this year's Nobel Trilogy is the Prize for Chemistry 
which was just awarded to three scientists for the discovery and synthesis of quantum dots. These particles exploit the fact that if you shrink a piece of crystal to nanoscale dimensions, that's more than a billionth of a metre, then quantum mechanics begins to influence their optical and electronic properties. Nowadays, they're used in everything from TVs to LEDs. Here is a magnificent example of taking quantum theory that no one believed was real all the way through to actually making a TV screen. That's Judith Jordan. I'm president of the American Chemical Society. I spoke to Judith to get a better understanding of quantum dots. So a quantum dot is actually a single nanocrystal. It's a nanostructure. So if you think about the width of a human hair is about 10,000 nanometers. We're talking here about 2 to 10 nanometers, so a factor of 1,000 less. It's a very, very small particle. And because it's small and because it has so many electrons densely in this little caged area, it actually exhibits what's called quantum effects in that the electrons don't react like they do in just large molecules where they kind of float around and talk with each other. But here they actually interact heavily with each other in such a way that they can actually give off and emit light. And so a quantum dot is a small nanocrystal that can, because of the size of that crystal, and the size of the particle, emit light. And that light can come out in different wavelengths and that means different colors from blue, from high energy to red to low energy. Okay, and what is the material that's typically a quantum dot is made from? Depends on what the situation is, what the material is, and why they're using them. But they're always inorganic crystalline structure from an inorganic molecule. So there's no carbon involved at all. So if if anyone's been to a chemistry lesson, they know that the properties of a chemical or any material are usually determined by the electrons that are floating around all around it. So why is it different with a quantum dot then? What are the quantum effects that come into play to make them different? It has to do with the nature of those materials. So when you think about the types of materials they make them from, which are larger atoms, cadmium, indium, selenides. There's a lot of electrons in those particular atoms. And when you bring them in and you bring them very small together, that's what gives them the actual physical properties. And it has to do with the fact that there are so many electrons so densely packed in the size of the little dot. The properties are then determined, of course, by the factors, the size, the shape, the composition, and how they actually work. It was theorized back in the 1930s. And I think that's what's so important about quantum dots, right, is the fact that this is an opportunity to take theory that was atomic theory from the 1930s and bring it all the way forward to today and use that quantum theory, bring it through solid academic research then actually demonstrate that you could make these quantum dots, develop all the analytical capabilities required to show that you had these little tiny nanoparticles. And now we have the ability to scale them in a high-end manufacturing mechanism very, very quickly and very efficiently to make everything from television screens to lighting displays. Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of applications, you've mentioned TV screens and uh, lights and things. Where are these things going to be used in the coming years, do you think? That's a really good question. There's been a lot of excellent work done by many people. Example is the National Research Energy Labs, NREL, where they've actually demonstrated and made quantum dot solar cells 
And they were able to do this with layers such that they actually got two times the efficiency out of the solar cell than they would with silicon or cadmium telluride or something like that. And the reason is because of these really crazy little quantum phenomenon. Usually what you get, of course, with a solar cell, you get one photon into the semiconductor layer the silicon or the cadmium telluride uh, semiconductor layer, and that pops up one electron into the conduction band. So for every photon that goes in, you get an electron out. Sometimes there's actually less efficiency than that. But with quantum dots, because of this highly dense packing of these electrons and the quantum effects, you actually have the opportunity to pop up two electrons. So that almost doubles the efficiency of the solar cell. Another really interesting opportunity going forward is medical imaging, you have, in most of the cases, when you want to image cancer cells and things like that, you have something that will adhere to the cancer cell. It's usually a biologic of some sort, an antigen or something like that. And you have a fluorophore, something that fluoresces to actually tell you as a marker using microscopy or some other technique to tell where the cell is. Well, the promise of quantum dots is that you can actually have tinier probes and be able to put it even closer to the cell and get a better definition on the shape of the cell. That is stuff that is ongoing right now with them. In the solar cell, you're getting more energy out and more electricity, and, which is good. And then for the biological sampling, you're getting a much higher resolution image, which is useful for diagnostics and treatment and everything else as well. Indeed. And just finally, I would love to get your response with the three winners. I'm sure you know them. And I wondered when you heard the news this morning, what was your response? I was absolutely thrilled. I couldn't be more delighted. First of all, two of them, Wendy and Bruce, are both members of the American Chemical Society, award winners by from ACS, and they publish regularly in ACS journals. The other reason I was delighted was for the reason I just said. We as chemists care an enormous amount about two things, developing novel architectures and scaffolds of atoms to actually not only do it to be novel, I'm an industrial scientist, but to take that novelty and be able to make it into a product or a process that helps people and planet Earth. And here is a magnificent example, a magnificent example of taking a theory from the 1930s and moving it all the way through to manufacture and scale up for use by people today. And I was delighted that the committee chose a representative sample of people when they chose the people to honor. It wasn't just the theoretics. It wasn't just the work done at an academic lab. It's everything all the way through scale and manufacturing. And that was quite amazing. Okay, Judy, thank you very much for your time. You're quite welcome. Our thanks to Kathleen Carrico, Drew Wiseman, John Morangos, Judy Jordan, and the economist Natasha Loder. Don't forget that if you love Babbage, you'll need to subscribe. There's just a few weeks left to get our special half-price subscription offer for Economist Podcast Plus. Just Google Economist Podcasts or click on the link in the show notes to find out more. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and Kunal Patel. Mixing and sound design is by James Stickland and the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.